Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. This week, as we look at that letter that Paul wrote, we come to chapter 4. And so far in his letter, Paul has developed a number of related themes. He started out following his greeting by giving the church there quite a firm rebuke because he accuses them of being swayed by people who've come amongst them. And those people are preaching a gospel different to the one that Paul entrusted them with. And he goes to some length to defend the gospel that he took to them. He talks about having gone back to Jerusalem and checked it with the other apostles there. And in fact you know that as you go through those next couple of chapters, he talks about having had to take Peter up on that issue. So he knows that gospel is the same as his fellow apostles have been sharing. And then he goes on to re-emphasise that we are saved by faith. Not as a result of the law. Not through observance of rules and regulations. And he goes as far as to point out that if the law had been able to save us, then actually Christ's ministry on earth and his death and suffering on the cross would have all been in vain. And then he builds on that fact that it's faith rather than works or the law that saves us and commends us to live out a life of faith. And he compares it with the life of Abraham because he too received a promise in faith. And so by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, What he's asserting is that by faith we all share in the promises that were made to Abraham. We become like sons of Abraham and heirs to those promises. And then we get to chapter 4. And this is how he continues. (coughs) I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have laboured over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my, and sorry, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. But what then became of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you might make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. But not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted he who was born according to the spirit, so it also is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Do you see, he's now progressing his argument by reflecting on the life of Abraham. And it's interesting, sometimes Morwenna reads my notes before I preach. Other weeks she doesn't. This week she doesn't, and yet 
we hear about the life of Abraham as we worship. And by looking at Abraham's life, what he does is he contrasts the fortune of these two sons. One who was born to a slave and the other to his wife. And what he's trying to tell us is that if we are to live our lives in victory, benefiting from those promises that were given to Abraham, then we need to break free from everything that binds us to the chains of slavery and to the law. We need instead to embrace the freedom that Christ has promised all of us. You'll find out as we move into chapter 5 that what he's saying is summed up in the first verse. For freedom Christ set us free. Not that we should be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But let's not get ahead of ourselves for a minute. There's a lot to be learnt from looking at the example Paul uses, that of Abraham. And you can read all about Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 11 onwards. But in essence, his story goes something like this. He was formerly called Abraham. And that means high father. Now, in those days, names were quite important because they told you quite a lot about the character of the individual who'd been given them. And so it was somewhat ironic that this man was called High Father and yet he was married to a woman who didn't seem to be able to have children. But then God calls him and he promises to take him to a great nation. He promises that out of him offspring will come. But he's got a wife who's barren. And as the years go by, that obviously becomes a pressure on his life. He feels this promise of God on him that he will one day be a great nation. And yet he's unable to have children. So what does he do? They do something which was actually quite customary at the time. When someone had no heirs... Abraham slept with Sarah's servant. And she conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. This is the son of the slave that's referred to in that passage. And for a while, it looked like Ishmael, the son of the slave, would be the heir of Abraham. But then when he was 99 years old... God talks to him again. He reminds him of the promise that he'd put over his life. And he changes his name to Abraham. Now, if High Father seemed ironic for someone who wasn't able to have children under their marriage, he's now calling him Father of a Multitude. as part of that covenant it's when circumcision was introduced to the Jews and hence the references 
earlier in Galatians that we've seen to the circumcision party. It's going back to that covenant and to the law and the insistence that Gentiles be circumcised to inherit the blessings of Abraham. But still, at 99 years of age, Abraham has no legitimate children. But God promises him that Sarah will give birth. She's 90. At the thought of that, she was quite amused. You have to admit, a 99-year-old dad and a 90-year-old mother doesn't raise faith in you. True to God's word, Sarah conceives and she bears another son to him, Isaac. And this is the son of the promise. This is Abraham's true heir. Now, as you might expect, we have Ishmael who was expecting to be the heir of Abraham and suddenly this new contender comes on the block and usurps him because he's a legitimate heir. He is the son of the promise. He is the son of the true wife. And it causes some friction between the two of them. And so in the end, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. <coughs> You probably know the story that follows later where Abraham takes Isaac up the side of a mountain to sacrifice and worship God. And what you need to bear in mind when you read that story is that as he takes Isaac up that mountain, as he lays him on the altar, we have to understand what he's being asked to do. Killing Isaac would be traumatic enough for anyone because you're killing a son. But in addition to that, Abraham was being asked to put everything of the promises of God and his future on the line. He had to be ready to put everything to death. And as he raised the knife, that's what he showed God he was willing to do. That he would do whatever was required of him. Now, now if you do a comparison of these two children, Ishmael and Isaac, there's a number of contrasts which Paul picks up on. First of all, you've got the contrast between the two mothers. Hagar is a slave whereas Sarah is free. Hagar's child, Ishmael, is born of the flesh. It's through human planning and action. Whereas Sarah's child is a child of faith and of promise. Nothing Abraham or Sarah could do could have brought about that conception because they'd proved to be barren together and they were advancing in years. Hagar's son, as a result, was born into slavery. And so he was usurped when Isaac was born. Isaac was born free, and he becomes the true heir. 
And then they, there's a comparison between the Jerusalem that's current and that which is to come. The truth of this is that if we are trying to fulfil the requirements of the law and earn God's love and favour through our best efforts, then what we're doing is we are following the tradition of the slave woman. If instead we're putting our faith in God and not looking at the basis of our own works, then we're following the tradition of the free woman. And what Paul is wanting to do here is to encourage us to be children of the promise, not children of the law. He's encouraging us to place our life and our whole relationship with God on faith in Jesus. Not on our limited ability to keep to the requirements of the law. He says it in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If we are to live our lives in victory, we have to break free once and for all from those chains of slavery. We have to leave the law behind and embrace the freedom that Christ has brought us, that God has promised us all through faith. So how do we do it? Firstly, we need to accept the Father's affection. This is what Paul writes in verses 4 to 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can have that personal, intimate relationship with God. We can approach him as we would approach an affectionate, loving father. When we looked at the story some weeks back, the story of the prodigal son, we saw how he had actually removed himself from his father's ability to affirm him and show love for him. And that was part of his downfall. We saw how he must misunderstood his position in the household. He had started to think upon himself not as a son but as a slave. We need to spend time accepting the affirmation and the love that our Father just showers on us. We must never think we are slaves. We need to accept it. We need to accept his love, his acceptance and his affirmation. Because when we remove ourselves from that presence, that's when we start to feel like servants. That's when we start to feel like slaves rather than the sons that we rightfully remain. So Paul writes, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
The second thing we need to do is we need to lose our religion. This is what Paul writes in verses 9 to 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have laboured over you in vain. His comments about the days and months and the seasons and the years indicates that they had actually gone back to observing all the religious rituals and ceremonies of their Jewish past. They'd picked up again that yoke of slavery and they'd started putting it back on their shoulders. And we've got to be on our guard against doing exactly the same. We've got to be on our guard against legalism. We need to be on our guard against the trappings of external religion. You know, most of you know that I grew up in a Methodist church. And a couple of things come out of that. I love some of the great Wesleyan hymns. They were written in days of revival. They tell us great truths about God. But we have to be careful to sing them because they're meaningful, they're relevant, and they add to our praise and our worship. Not just because of a sense of nostalgia from the past. We have to stop singing things or doing things just because it's what we have always done. Another example is when I was about 13, I was confirmed. It's about becoming a member in the Methodist Church these days. But there's a Sunday morning ceremony and you go forward and you kneel at the front and the minister comes along and he lays hands on your head and he prays for you. Now the reason it's called confirmation is because historically that was the time when new believers went forward, they were prayed for the baptism in the Holy Spirit and received it as a confirmation that they had turned their lives over to Jesus. But over the centuries and the generations, the power of that ceremony had gone. And what was left was a ritual. We need to watch things as we grow bigger, as we get older as a church, that we don't keep doing the same things when God has walked away from them. We need to follow God and to keep where his presence is. It could start off with silly things. We could keep passing the sweets around on a Sunday morning when it actually stops being helpful. We need to make sure what we do is helpful to us, adds to what we're doing and focuses us on God. Because if we fall into the trap, our meetings will become empty ritual 
instead of a meeting place with God. We need to break free of ideas that we've got from the past. That the church only meets on a Sunday. You know, we are as much church when we meet midweek. And in fact, we are just as much church when we all go about our business on a Monday morning. The only difference is we are church scattered, not church gathered. If our relationship with God is based exclusively on meeting together on a Sunday morning, on the type of music we have, on the song list, on the name outside on the banner, then actually we're getting into legalism. We're starting to propose engagement to slavery. And then thirdly, we need to get back to our first love. When Paul was in Galatia, he obviously suffered from some form of illness. We have no idea what it was. But it seems like the Galatians considered his extended stay with them a real blessing. But he's not sure they'd feel the same way now. In verses 14 to 16 he says, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel from God, as Christ Jesus. But then what has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Such was their love for the message that Paul was with, sharing with them. But he says, you'd have gouged your eyes out. If I'd asked for them, you'd have pulled them out of their sockets and given them to me. And then he carries on. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. His desire was to see them restored to the eagerness and to the excitement they had when he first shared his good news with them. In the book of Revelation, the angel challenges the seven churches. And to the church in Ephesus, he writes these words. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, we all find the effect of our day-to-day -day life can take the edge off our relationship with God from time to time. Living and working in the world can take the colour out of the picture. But we have to move back 
to the way our relationship with God was in those early days. Do you remember how it was? When you first became a Christian, when you first made that decision to follow Christ, or even when you first received the Holy Spirit, Because Christianity is first and foremost about loving Jesus. So in summary, God doesn't want us to live our lives as slaves. He doesn't want us to be dominated by that any more than he wants us to be dominated by fear. He wants us to live like sons, in faith. And we need to allow his love and his affection to touch us and to permeate our lives. We need to throw out the old religion, where we still cling to it. We need to get back to our first love, Jesus There's all sorts of commandments in the New Testament. And you know that many of them have the words attached to them, one another. One of them is to encourage one another. I want us to be encouraging one another to get back to our first love in Jesus. When we meet on a Sunday, when we meet midweek, when we have coffee together, we can do that with one another. We can just encourage one another. What are the signs that it's not your first love anymore? When, if you're honest with yourself, your prayer life is less than you'd like it to be. When the thought of having to scrape the ice from your windscreen on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday or Wednesday evening is enough to stop you going and meeting with your brothers and sisters and God. We need to be building one another up in this area. We need to be restoring the promises that God has spoken over each other. That came out in one of the prophetic words this morning. I think that might have been Bob. can't see him now. Um, but actually, God has spoken promises over people. And they're like the promise over Abraham. They're ageless. And you may see them today, you may not. You may see them in the future. They may actually be a promise for a future generation. But they'll be trustworthy and they will be true. And we need to keep reminding each other. Just as we were in the worship this morning, I felt it would be good for us just to end up by just turning our eyes back on Jesus. By making sure he's our first love. He's the thing, or sorry, he's the person who motivates us. But he's the person who makes us do what we do. Talk about what we talk about and think what we think about. That we've got him in the right position in our lives.
Because if we, as the church, haven't got Christ at our centre and the Holy Spirit to empower us, then this world has no chance. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 